Well, good morning, 1030. How are you doing this morning? What? Oh my goodness, that is amazing. How did you know that was the right answer? Good job. Well, uh, well, good morning to you. Those of you who are here, anyone gathered in our overflow space, uh, there's folks watching online, tons of folks all over the world, literally, watching online and folks listening to the podcast. I'm so glad you carved out time of your life uh, to really hear about, to know, to experience the transforming love of Jesus. And that is what we are all about here. And I want to continue uh, in a time of responding to God. I want to give you an opportunity uh, to respond to God before I get into the heart of the message that I'll be teaching today. And I want to let you know we're going to do that through giving back to God. This is something that we regularly do as a church. Uh, we think it's actually totally right and normal to look at my life as a gift from God and to say thank you, God. And giving back to Him is one of the ways I um, relinquish the control my stuff has on my life. And it's one of the ways I invest into things way bigger than me, way beyond me. And to give you a hint of that, our uh, church has really from day one, since we opened doors, uh, we have carved out uh, 10% of our budget to really go beyond uh, these walls. We give it to uh, our benevolence fund that we have, which helps families who find themselves in difficult financial times here in our church. But we also invest a significant amount of resources into our partners that we have here in the city and then also into our partnerships that we have abroad. And I wanted to just give you an update as to how your church is using the money that you trust uh, to God. Uh, Many of us have been watching over the last week or so the damage and devastation that Hurricane Florence has caused uh, in sort of the southeast of our country. And we have invested $10,000 as a church into World Vision, one of our premier partners that we have who are on the ground. So I want to say thank you to you for giving to this church. And... Uh, We'll continue to see as God leads us how we want to get around them and the relief work that they're doing. There is a lot uh, more work to be done. And if you actually want to give beyond uh, what our church has already invested, you can actually go to the website that's on the screen behind you and you can give uh, that way. You can follow the link. It's real easy. (laughs) It's really long. Uh, But you can (laughs) write it down or go to World Vision's webpage and you can give directly uh, there. So what we're going to do is we're going to actually give right now Uh, to what God is doing in our lives and in this church and well beyond. Uh, There's three ways we do that. We give in the buckets. That's uh, some people like the old school way of passing buckets. They like the sound of paper hitting plastic. And so you want to do that. That's awesome. We love that. And that's a way you love to give. Uh, You can also text in to give. If you're watching online, this is the easiest way for you. If you want to support the work that God's doing here, text in to give. And uh, or you can go online and sign up to become a faithful, joyful, uh, consistent giver. Does that make sense? This is our response to God. We're not taking anything. Uh, This is a chance for us to give back to God. If you're a guest here, we don't expect you to do this, but those of us who call God our Father in this church our home, uh, we want to give. So I'm going to ask our amazing volunteers to come forward as we do that. Well, we are in week two of a series called Me, Also Me. We are looking at the hidden motives behind why we do what we do, that there is always something beneath the surface that can guide or direct or even redirect our actions, our choices, our interactions with others. That there is always, as we're going to look at today, there is always another story at work. There's always a also me going on at work in every one of our lives at any given time. In fact, I would say, I would contend, as we'll see over the course of today, that there is always in our lives fact and fiction, that we have swirling around in us at all times fact and fiction. And sometimes we confuse the two. Sometimes we can't tell actually which 
is which. And when we get that mixed up and we kind of get in our heads about our stories, uh, it can hijack our emotions, it can hijack our decisions, our actions, and our interactions with others. And to show you just how much you can get the two confused, we're going to do a little pop quiz, all right? I figured you got up this early, you came to church, let's take a quiz. And so here's what I want you to do. Turn to the person next to you. So right now, like, turn, look, make eye contact with them. If you're watching online, just find someone at Starbucks next to you, look them in the eyes. And I want you to say this, look in the eyes and say, it's about to go down. All right, so we're going to take a little pop quiz. Now, it's not a competition, but let's be honest, it's a competition. So all you have to do is say fact or fiction. I'm going to give you a, a little scenario, something that you have learned, something that you've heard before. You just have to look at the person next to you and say fact or fiction. All right, first one is this, fact or fiction. It takes seven years for gum to digest in your stomach. Turn to the person next to you. Fact or fiction? All right, we're starting with the real theologically deep stuff here. <laughs> I promise we'll get to the Bible eventually. All right, what did you say? Fact or fiction? Yeah, it's totally fiction, but how many of you heard that growing up? Yeah, you're like, don't swallow your gum. It'll take forever to get out of you. And that is just not true. That Your gum digests just like everything else uh, that you eat. We're not going to go into the exact process of how that works, but you get, you get the idea. All right, fact or fiction. Turn to the person next to you. Fact or fiction. If you go out when it's cold, like in the winter, without a coat, you will catch a cold. All right? You catch a cold if you go out in the winter without a coat. Fact or fiction? All right, what did you say? Oh, a little mix. Not sure. All right, here's the deal. Since we have six months of winter in Chicago, this is an important one to know. It's actually fiction. That's not true. That's not actually true. You're, you, you can be cold. You can, all kinds of other things can lead to a cold, but it is not guaranteed that if you don't wear a coat in winter, you will catch a cold. All right, next one. Uh, that fact or fiction, look at the person next to you. Cracking your knuckles will give you, eventually give you arthritis. All right? <laughs> So turn to the person next to you, fact or fiction, cracking your knuckles will give you arthritis. Uh-huh. All right, fact or fiction? Fiction, it's not actually true, but I grew up in a home, yep, it's not true, so just crack away while you're in church. It's not true, it's gross, I'm not gonna lie, it's gross, but it doesn't mean that you will actually get arthritis from doing that. All right, last one, last one, fact or fiction. Look at the person next to you. If you cross your eyes long enough, they'll stay stuck that way. All right, fact or fiction. Cross your eyes long enough, they'll stay stuck that way. Uh-huh. Or if someone hits you in the back of the head while you're crossing your eyes. All right, fact or fiction. Fiction, it's not actually true. Although my mom used to scare me with this because I when I learned to cross my eyes, it was the same week that we had uh, family photos. We had the big family photos at Olin Mills, you know, like we went with the whole backdrop uh, behind us. And I had just learned to cross my eyes. And my mom kept telling me, stop, your eyes are going to stay stuck that way. So I crossed, I subtly crossed my eyes through every family photo we took that year. And while it's not true that your body, uh, your eyes will stay that way, in our family photo, my eyes have permanently stayed crossed since we took that picture. Now listen, these are all things that people told you when you were younger, maybe you've heard before that they told you were fact, but in truth, you know actually that they're fiction. And while these things can be seemingly harmless, I think we're living in an age where it's really important that we know the difference between the two. We have leaders who tell us that our facts are actually fiction. But what I'm more concerned about is for folks who believe that their fiction 
is actually fact. I think that's where we get into a lot of trouble, when we believe that our fiction is actually fact. In fact, here's an important question for you to consider. What happens when you put your faith in fiction? What happens to your life, your beliefs, your relationships, when you put your faith in something maybe you thought was true, was told was true, but ultimately it's just a work of fiction? What happens when you believe your stories, even if they're not true? To show you what this looks like, what can happen to a life, and what we can miss out on when we take our perceptions and project them into reality, I want to share with you a story uh, that I love. It's been one of the central stories of my life. It's not my story. Jesus told the story, and it's actually found in Matthew 25. Grab a Bible, if you would, and turn to Matthew chapter 25. Now, if you don't have a Bible with you, maybe you got it on your phone. Awesome. Great. Brought one with you, fantastic. But we have Soul City Bibles right under your seat. So here in an overflow as well, grab a Soul City Bible and turn to page 806, 806. We'll get you right up to Matthew chapter 25. I'm gonna say this now. We're gonna deep dive today. Like we're gonna get into it today. So you might want to grab a pen. You might wanna jot uh, some of this down. We're gonna look at a passage, I believe, in a very fresh way. And I hope that God speaks to you through it. Now let me give you some context in Matthew chapter 25. Uh, This is a story that Jesus tells. It's called a parable. And this story is a parable about uh, a master or an employer entrusting his servants or his employees with bags of gold. It's also recorded in other gospel accounts as the parable of the talents or the parable of the minas. A talent or mina is a way of sort of measuring money. And so you know kind of what we're dealing with in the story. The bags of gold that Jesus is going to talk about in the story roughly represent about half a million dollars a bag in our current economy, Okay. So for our current valuation, each of the bags, roughly, a talent or a mine, it was about half a million dollars in our currency today. Keep that number in mind as we get into the story, and you'll see how significant this actually is. Jesus says this, Matthew 25, verse 14. Again, he's talking about the kingdom of God, what life is like with God. He says, again, it'll be like a man going on a journey who calls his servants and entrusted them, he trusted his wealth to them. To one, now this is on the screen, it's in your book, so when I pause here in a moment, you already know the answer. I just want to let you know that in advance, okay? So to one he gave how many? To one he gave five bags of gold. To another he gave two bags of gold. And to another he gave one bag of gold, each according to his ability. So he knew something about them, and he entrusted them appropriately with his wealth. Then it says he went on his journey. All right, so finance folks, think about it right now. Add it up. All told, we have eight bags of gold at half a million dollars each. How much money is that? See, look at y'all doing math this early in the morning. Four million dollars. Think of that. That's the intensity of the story that Jesus is telling in his day. That's a significant amount of wealth. Would you agree? That he's entrusting to his servants or his employees in this case. That is a, a gigantic act of generosity. It shows tremendous trust. And the author and theologian Ken Bailey writes that in in this sort of arrangement, it was implicit in in first century culture and specifically in the area where Jesus was from and teaching, that the the deal was they would share in whatever profits they brought back to the master. So he's entrusting his wealth to them to go do something with it, that they would get a share or a portion, that was part of the deal, with whatever they came back with. That's going to be important for later as well. So let's look what happens. Verse 16, the man who received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags gained two more. 
But, this is really important, verse 18, but the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Okay, pause. Now, I'm going to level with you. I did not uh, study finance in college. I did not get my degree in finance. I majored in biblical studies with a minor in theater. (laughs) This is literally the only job that I can do. I have no other options. This is it for me, all right? So I didn't study, spend a lot of time studying finance in college, but I, I do know this. The dig a hole in the ground and bury it financial plan is not a great strategy, right? There's not a lot of wealth diversification in that strategy. And it ends up ultimately costing this servant, as we're about to see, this mistake cost him everything. But I believe what it actually reveals, as we'll see here in a second, is a deeper fiction that he had put his faith in. There was a deeper fiction that he had actually put his faith in. All right, so let's keep moving on in the story. Let's see what happens. Verse 19. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. He's like, all right, let's see what you've done. The man who received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me, you trusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. Now look at this response. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. You've been faithful with a few things. I would say that's a lot of things, but you've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Now look at this phrase. You might want to underline this. Come and share your master's happiness. Now two uh, meanings there for that word, share your master happiness. That, that is literally come and share in my joy. Well done. I, well, that is awesome. Great investments. Come share in my joy. Let's celebrate. And here's your share. You get to receive your share of what you have helped bring in. Verse 22, the man with two bags of gold came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. And look what it says. Verse 23, his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful to few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Now, this is the high point of the story. This is a great story so far, especially for these two servants, because they turned three and a half million dollars into seven million dollars. And you can see from the master's response how happy he is. They get to share in his wealth. And he, in fact, then becomes the Lord of the reward. He gives to them and they get to share. There's a party you can imagine. The music kicks up. 24 karat magic is playing in the air. Like people got their pinky fingers. Like it is a, it is an awesome moment. Party starting to happen. This is a great day. But then we get to the third servant and the story turns. And I want you to pay special attention to what this third servant says to and about his master. Verse 24. Then the man who received the one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid. And I went out and I hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. And you can just imagine him handing the bag with dirt still kind of falling off it like Here it is, just exactly as you gave it to me. Now, there is a powerful moment here that's easy to miss in this text. Let's go back to verse 24 and look at what's going on here. He says that his master is a hard man, harvesting where he hasn't sown and gathering where he hasn't 
scattered seeds. He's basically saying, I know all about you. I've heard stories about you. I know that all this money isn't on the up and up. I know that it comes from shady sources. In other words, basically, I know that you're from Chicago. <laughs> I, know, I, know how you, I know where you're from. I know how you guys do things there. And I don't want to, you know, I, I, didn't, I, I knew that about you. I didn't want to risk it. Now, he is, that is a seriously salty thing to say to someone who just entrusted you with half a million dollars. To, to call out their supposed reputation from a rumor that you had heard about them. This is actually a really bold move, and it's easy to miss in the story. He had let his fiction become his fact. He put his faith in his fiction, the story that this master was a hard man and, and that he didn't, you know, earn what he had legally. And Now think about it. Just go back to the facts of the story. What had the master done? He had entrusted a significant amount of his wealth to his employees, to these servants. And when they had returned back with him, with whatever they had earned, he shared with them, shared his happiness, shared some of the resources. But this third servant was stuck so much in his head and so much in his story that he missed the opportunity of a lifetime and one that he would spend a lifetime regretting. Verse 26, look at the master's reply. His master replied, oh, you wicked and lazy servant. Oh, so, okay, so you knew that I harvest where I've not sown and gathered where I've not scattered seed, huh? Uh-huh. Okay, well, then you should have at least put my money on deposit with the bankers. Like, opened like a kid's checking account. Like, do something with it so that when I returned, I would have at least received it back with interest. Verse 28, take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. And you can imagine that first guy in that moment going, woohoo! Too soon, sorry, too soon, too soon. And then he goes on to say in verse 29, for whoever has will be given more and they'll have an abundance. Whoever does not have doesn't get it. Even what they have will be taken away from them. And look at how Jesus closes this story. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Great story, Jesus. <laughs> really stuck the landing there at the end. He's making a hard point, an important point. And I think aside from the obvious, and we've talked about this passage before here at Soul City, aside from the obvious invitation to make much of what God has entrusted to you, you know, God has entrusted you with, with resources, with time and talent and treasures. God's resourced you with relationships and opportunities. God's resourced you richly in your life. And so the obvious invitation from this passage is about leveraging what God has given you to make much of it. But I think there's also a deeper story at play in this story. I think this is also a powerful lesson about the difference between fact and fiction and the stories that we tell ourselves. See, all of us have our own little stories that we love to tell, little works of fiction that we can put tremendous amount of faith in. We have stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. You have stories that you tell yourself about you. You have stories that you tell yourself about others. You have stories that you tell yourself about God. And from this parable, this story that Jesus told, this is a story where the servant had a work of fiction, a story about his master, that he was untrustworthy, that he was someone to be afraid of. And so because of that, you saw how he acted and exactly what he missed when he projected his perception into reality. I believe 
This is something we all do far more than we even know or realize. All of us, you and me, have stories that we write. All of us have stories that we write. And we write them about all kinds of things. And we write them about all kinds of people. You have stories that you write about people that you love. You have stories, you have a lot of stories about people that you don't even like. You have stories that you write about people at work. You have stories you write about your boss. You have stories that you write uh, about uh, people you've never even met before. You have stories that you write about whole people groups. A lot of people from Chicago have stories about Wisconsin. You know, they got stories that they write about that. A lot of people have stories they write about whole ethnic groups. You see, we have stories that we let stew in our mind until we eventually put our faith in our fiction. You ever wonder what some of the stories are that are swirling around in your head and in your heart? What you have put your faith into, that you've just believed that it's actually a fact. This is who this person is. This is what's true about them. This is what's true about me. This is just what's true about God. Could it be, possibly, could it be that it's actually a work of fiction that you've put your faith in? Think about the stories that you write about yourself. All of us have stories that we write about ourselves. Like it or or not, we write all kinds of stories about ourselves. Maybe it's based on stories that you heard or things that you heard your parents say or or teachers or coaches say growing up, or maybe it's something a boss has told you about you or an ex has said about you, wherever it kind of came from. We all have stories that we tend to believe about ourselves. Maybe you have a story um, that you are just, you're a victim. You are just a victim. That's your narrative. I am a victim to my circumstances. I am a victim to other people's choices. I would move forward. I would get ahead, but I can't because of what they have done. You know, that's a story, actually. That's a story that you tell yourself. Maybe you have a story that um, you know better. So let's say at work, you know better than your boss. And if you were in charge, you would do better. Because ultimately what that story is really about is you believing that you are better. Right? We can write a story like, I, I would know better. And it comes out in our words. It comes out in our actions. It comes out in how we treat others. Maybe you have a story about yourself. Maybe for you, uh, it's around relationships. And you have a story about yourself that you're always going to be single. That's your story. I'm always going to be single. Everyone else seems to find someone else. Maybe there's something wrong with me. Or you have a story, I'm never going to be in a happy marriage, a fulfilling marriage. You've just been telling yourself that story. Our marriage can't ever be like what I see everyone else's marriage on Instagram, Facebook. (laughs) It's a story. Do you know that? Do you know that that's not based in fact? That's a story. I have all kinds of stories about myself. I... I mean, there's stories I've been telling myself for years. Uh, There's a story that I have about myself that I am really great at ideas, but really bad at follow through. Now, there's some data points. I can point to some things, but I've believed that story to be true. And what I've interpreted that story to mean is that you can't count on me. Now, if I walk around believing that that story is true, can you imagine how that affects how I interact with you, how we interact with each other, what I believe about myself and my potential and the gifts that God has given me? Do you see the power that these stories can have about yourself when you put your faith into fiction? They're just stories that we have about ourselves and that we have about others. You ever thought about the stories that you actually have about others? Going back to the work one, maybe you do. You have a story that your boss does not know what they're doing. You don't even know how they got this job. And if it were yours, you would do it better, right? You have a story that they're incompetent, that they don't get the culture, that they don't, they're just doing it like they did it at their last place. That's a story. 
Maybe you have a story that men can't be trusted. And you have very real data points. You've been hurt, neglected, abused, but you've created a whole story that all men can't be trusted. And you see how that can affect your relationships, your interactions with others. You can have a story that your partner only cares about themselves. And it's really easy when things are tense or intense at home. It's so easy to go to that store. They just only care about themselves. They just, all, all they want to do is golf. All they want to do is whatever it is, whatever it is. All they care about is themselves. I take a little bit of fact and I write a really big fiction around it, right? You, listen, I'm not, I mean, I've been around the block for a little while. I've been around here for a little while. I know that you have stories about pastors, people like me and Jeannie. We all do. I, I, I know you do. Maybe you have a story that pastors uh, need to know it all. They need to have all the answers, right? And then we spend time together like, well, that story clearly is not true. Can't know it all. Maybe you have the story that pastors need to do it right every time. If they don't do it right, and really what you mean is if they don't do it my way, then they did it wrong. Or that pastors have to do it all. Well, at my old church, that's how you know you're starting to get into a story. Well, at my old church... So now you're writing a story. You're taking some things, a little bit of fact, and you're making a whole fiction around it that this is what reality should be. Do you see how easy it is to actually just write these, how quick, how fast we can compose masterpieces of fiction about others? And I know for you, because I know this about me, I know that you have probably at some point in your life um, felt what it feels like to have someone lie about you. You ever have someone tell a lie about you, an untruth about you at work or in a relationship, or, or maybe you found out that someone was gossiping about you, and if you haven't found that, here's, I hate to bring to you, people have gossiped about you, <laughs> right? So you gossip, you know what that feels like, or, or maybe you know what it feels like to have someone treat you differently because of your gender, or because of your ethnicity, or because of your body, or because of your socioeconomic background. Okay, we, so we all have that feeling, right? We know what it feels like to be treated differently, to have others treat us like. So why would we do that to anyone else? If we know what that feels like, why would I want to perpetuate that onto someone else? By writing a story, telling a story, and then treating them differently, all based on the faith that I've put in my fiction. Honestly, honestly, it's because our, it's just easier to go with our stories. It's just a whole lot easier for us to just kind of go with our stories that we've written. Stories we've written about ourselves, stories we've written about others, and ultimately, like the story that we just read in Matthew 25, stories that we have about God. You know all of us have stories about God. You have stories about God. I have some stories about God. Beliefs that I've just come to accept to be true, that I don't even know where they came from. Maybe you have a story about God that God is, is mad at you. He's just he's mad at you. You've messed up so much. And God's mad at you. And maybe that's the reason you're here today is to try and maybe offset some of that anger. Like, God, you see me? I'm here. <laughs> right? You have a story that God's mad at you. Or, or even worse, that God's indifferent about you. He didn't care about you. Maybe you have a story that what uh, God expects is perfection. You know, maybe you grew up in a home where it's like, well, that's what you have to do. If you want to please God, you have to be perfect. Or you grew up in a church like that, that kind of culture. And so your story is that's all God wants is for you to be perfect. And you know, and I know, and guess what? God knows that you're not. Or maybe you have a story that God agrees with all your decisions. He's like, yeah, me and God are down. Yeah, no, it's totally, I can totally do this. Yeah, me and God are down. And sometimes you'll even find a verse to back it up, right? And so you just have a story. If you're doing it, then God's down with it, right? We all have our stories. Or maybe you have a story that, that God is 
is missing in action when you need him most. When you suffer a loss, you're grieving through the death of someone you love or the death of a dream, and you can't feel or sense God, it's so easy in that moment to write a story that God is nowhere to be found. You know, it's impossible to have a real relationship with God with a God that isn't real. That's not really who God is, but it's our story. And it's impossible to have a real relationship with the God that we create in our mind based on the stories that we tell ourselves. And you know what the crazy thing is about the difference between fact and fiction and the stories that we write? You know what the crazy thing is? It's that 90% of our stories, 90% of our stories are rooted in about 10% reality. Now, I just made that statistic up. It's not from a book. I didn't read it. But it sounds good, doesn't it? In fact, I would say to you, test it out. This is usually how it goes. 90% of our stories are rooted in like 10% reality. There are trace elements of facts, patterns, things that have actually happened in the real world. But we take those and give them meaning. We take those and interpret those and write our fiction around them. And we write our stories around them. And I know this because, again, I do this. I did it. So let me just be real with you. I've done it very, very recently. I've made a whole huge thing. Like we talked about last week with the, um, if you were here last week, we talked about the iceberg. How when you look at an iceberg, all you see is 8% of its mass. The other 92% is below the surface. That's what we do, except inverse, right? It's about 8 to 10% of our stories are rooted in reality, but the rest is all fiction, stories we make up. So I did it uh, over the last six weeks. I've been, you know, doing a case study on this sermon for you in my own personal life. And uh, it happened, it happened uh, it, so I've been working on finishing my next book and been writing it over the course of this last year, and I had uh, a big due date. I had to turn, uh, the, you know, my whole first draft had to be turned in on August 1st. And so August 1st came around, and I knew about this date. I'd known about it for months, and uh, it wasn't done. It wasn't ready. And so I told myself, well, we're about to go on our family break. It's August 1st. Maybe my editor won't notice. I'll, ma- I'll finish it over the next week. I'm going to write about 100 pages over the next five days. And so, you know, totally realistic expectation. And so I just kind of hoped that they would forget. And then around August 7th or 8th, uh, my editor emailed me and said, hey, I, I noticed you missed the, the August 1st deadline. Um, can we talk about your book and where things are at? And I, I saw that email. Um, <laughs> But then I just sort of filed it into the ether. I just went, I'm going to deal with that later. I kind of have a file in my head where I put all those emails. And so I'm like, yeah, totally. We'll talk about it later. And I figured, you know what? I'll just get it turned into him before I even have to reply to this email. I'll just reply with the uh, 100 pages that I have to write the now in the next uh, day and a half. And so, so I kept pushing it off and pushing it off. And what I began to notice is that I began to have some anxiety building up and I began to start writing a story that my editor was mad at me. They're mad at me. Oh my gosh, this is what, you know, we made this agreement. I signed a contract and now they're mad at me and I hadn't turned it in. So I, I emailed back and said, hey, I'm, I'm going to get it to you. I'll get it to you by September 15th. It'll be turned into you and, you know, reply to the email. Okay, well, guess what? September 15th came around uh, last week. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, didn't, didn't have it done, didn't have it finished. And I got an email on September 16th from my editor in all caps that said, I'd like to talk about the book. Now, I interpreted those all caps to be uh, anger and intensity, and I went into fear, 
and I knew I needed to schedule a call. And then the next email came the next day. He had already scheduled the call and uh, sent me a calendar invite to it. So I texted a friend. I said, hey, I have a really hard call coming up with my editor. Can you pray for me? And I reached out to them, and I was so freaked out. And I talked a little bit about this last week. I was stressed. I was anxious. I didn't have it all done. I said I would. I didn't. See, remember the story I tell myself about myself? I have a million ideas, but don't follow through. Well, here I am proving that story is true. And I'm, ha- I'm revved up in my mind about the story. My editor's mad, and I don't know, can they fire me? Can you fire an author? How does that work? Or fine me? I don't know if there's a fine that they can. Like, I'm just going through all these worst-case scenario stories in my head. And so I finally got on the phone with them this last week. And you'll be shocked to find out that it was a delightful call. (laughs) And all my editor wanted to do was help and say, hey, listen, how can I help get you back on track? Can we readjust some of these dates? Man, I I wish you would have, you know, you could have told us this earlier, like a month and a half ago. And, um, (laughs) you know, know, I just, and literally his whole posture was as my advocate, my ally. Hey, we believe in this book. We're behind you. We're doing, we're, we're doing everything we can to get this book out. How can we help? Isn't it amazing how for weeks I walked around in my head, stressed out, anxious, believing a story about a guy who, you know, lives in Colorado. I don't even see face to face. Believing the story that he was mad at me, disappointed in me, that they were going to fire me, that all the things. It is literally a work of fiction rooted in about 10% reality. Just a few facts. Did I miss my deadline? Yes. Should, it be, should we talk to each other about it? Yes, we should talk to each other about it. Everything else I filled in on my own. That's what we do with the stories that we write. That's the power that they can have over your life, over your emotions, over your actions, and over your interactions with others. All of us, all of us have stories. And what we so often fail to see is that it's these stories precisely that keep us from meaningful connection, from authentic intimacy with others, and ultimately from living in the light that God created you to live in. So what are some of the stories that you have? What are some of the stories, uh, works of fiction that you've put your faith in, where you've been all up in your head? What have you been revving around all up in your head about, about others, about God, about yourself? And do you, is that, I guess I would ask the question, is that all you want? Because the servant in the story that we read in Matthew chapter 25, that's all he's just like, well, this is true. You're a hard man and I know all about you, so I'm just going to do this. Is that all you want? Or do you want more? Do you actually want to live the life and the light that God created you to live, to be able to tell the difference between fact and fiction? What I want to do is give you a really, really, really simple process. As I close up here, I want to give you a simple process that anyone can do. Again, you might want to jot this down. I think it's a powerful, practical tool that you can use when you find yourself revving up and writing a story, putting your faith in your fiction. So two things you might want to jot down, two little things to consider. First of all, when I find myself writing the story, first thing I do is I check it out. And the next thing I do, if necessary, I clear it up. I check it out. I clear it up. All right? So you got that? You got that? First thing you do if you find yourself writing a story is? Check it out. out. And then if needed, as we're going to get to in a second, the second thing you do is? Clear it up. I'm telling you, this leads to more liberty and freedom and integrity in your life than you could even possibly imagine. Oh, that that third servant had done just this work. Just checked it out first. And then if needed, cleared it up. 
So when I find myself writing the story, what does it mean to actually check it out? Three questions for you to jot down. Three questions for you to walk yourself through. It's a little process you can lead yourself through. You don't need anyone else to lead. Just you can lead yourself through. First question is this. When you find yourself writing the story, is it true? Step back objectively from yourself for a moment. Say to your emotions, you're not going to have the wheel for the next couple minutes. Is it true? Like, is it true that my editor was mad at me? Is it true that I'm a failure? Is it, you see what I'm saying? Is it true? And then the next question to consider is you just sit objectively with that. Is this really true? And if you find yourself going, yeah, yeah, it's totally true. This is totally who they are. This is totally what God's like. Second question, how do you know it's true? How do I know it's true? How do I really know that that's true about my ex? How do I really know that that's true about my boss? How do I know? How do you actually really know that it's true? And then the third question to consider is, what's the story causing me to do? What is the belief that I'm holding on to in this story, the fi- fiction that I've put my faith in, what's it actually causing me to do? How am I acting or reacting out of this belief, out of this story? What's it causing me to do? Think about that for a second. All the stories that we write, all the stories you have, the story I'm telling myself, maybe when you look in the mirror in the morning, as you begin to tell yourself the stories that you speak over yourself, are they true? Is it actually really true? How do you know that that's true about you? How are you treating yourself or treating your body because of the story that you believe about yourself or the story you have, whatever it may be, or lots of stories you may have about coworkers or your boss? Is it true? Like, is it objectively actually true? I know that you kind of talked with other people and you've convinced each other that it's true, but is it actually true? Or have I taken a few facts and written a wonderful work of fiction around it? And what is believing this? What is holding on to this story causing me, leading me to do? We saw what it did in the story in Matthew 25. What's it causing you to do? So I start by checking it out. And lots of times when I get there, I can go, oh yeah, that's just a story I'm writing. That's not true. I can't believe that I was moving to judgment towards that person. I can't believe the thoughts I was having towards that person. I can't believe the things I was saying to other people about that person or about myself. It's just a story. I can let it go. It's just a piece of fiction. I can let that go. I don't need to hold on to that. It doesn't need to have power over my life. I can let that go. And sometimes what we need to do is take responsibility for the stories that we've written. And that's when we go back and we actually clear it up. This is huge. If you want to be free, if you want to live in the light, if you want to have integrity in your life, you go to the person that you were writing. If it's about another person, you go to the person that you were writing the story about and you simply just say this. You simply say these words. I've been writing the story and then just fill in the blank. Hey, I wanted to let you know, I've been writing the story. I've been over here in my head for the last couple moments, for the last couple days, for the last couple months. I've been writing the story, and maybe you would fill in the blank. I don't know what it would be. Maybe I've been writing the story that you don't carry your weight around here, that I feel like our team is always having to pick up for your team dropping the ball. I've just been over here writing the story that you don't carry your weight around here, or I've been writing the story that you've been avoiding me, and it's caused me then to pull away from you, to guard my heart and protect myself, but I, I see that that's my story that I'm writing. I've been writing a story that maybe like you're on a date with someone, right, and you're sitting across from them, and they're just constantly texting around there, and you know, it's like, hey, I'm sitting over here. I'm writing a story that you care more about your phone than you do me, 
Now, I have some fact and some data points. You have been looking at your phone for the last two minutes. But I've written a story that you care more about that than me. And I just want to out that I'm writing that story. I've been over here in my head pulling away from you, judging you, hurting myself and my heart over the belief that this story is actually real. And do you see where that starts, that process of clearing it up? Do you see where it starts? It starts with you, not them. So often what we do is we say, it's their fault. They did this, that's why I'm acting this way. They did this, that's why I'm hurt. This starts with radical responsibility and it starts with you. It starts with me. I've been over here writing a story. This is what Jesus was talking about when he talked about removing the log from your own eye. This is what he's talking about. Radical responsibility. I've been over here writing my little story in my head. I can, can I tell you what a game changer this has been for our marriage? Like Jeannie and I don't get in fights. We have uh, elevated conversations. Okay? <laughs> Call it that. And in our elevated conversations, it's so easy to just go to, oh, well, you this, oh, you always that, or you, and we just made an agreement years ago that we, if we're going to fight, which we fight, let's fight fair. And this is a, an incredible way to fight fair because what it does is it diffuses and it takes the power out and it puts the responsibility on me. Hey, I've been writing the story that you, uh, you expect me to get the kids ready in the morning, to take care of all the morning responsibilities. And while you've been upstairs getting ready, I've been down here stewing, writing the story that you don't care, that you just assume that it's my responsibility. That's my story, and I take responsibility for that. And what they may say or, you know, in that moment is, oh my gosh, thank you. I did not even think of that or see that. Thank you, what a gift. That would be awesome. That could be a huge blow-up that could last a day or two, but it's diffused. I'm writing the story that you uh, care more about your work than you do about connecting with me. And so there'll be times where, you know, one of us has our laptop open and we're working on something for the church and we're supposed to be at home not working. And one of us will say, hey, I'm over here writing the story that you care more about work than connecting with me. And as I've been writing that story, I've just been making myself self-righteous that I'm the better partner because I'm at home not working and you're over there working, and I didn't even get curious as to maybe what you're working on. I just spent my, like, I ran, ran, ran straight to judgment with you. I take responsibility. Do you see how different that is than what we typically do? That's what, that's what can happen when you take radical responsibility and say, oh man, I've been putting a bunch of faith in my fiction. I've been over in my head writing my own story. you have any idea how many, how many fights, how much division, how much gossip can get cut off of the past if we would just own our story, if I would own my story, and if you would own yours. Do you want to know why so many relationships break down? Why so many great teams or great companies fall apart? Why good cultures go bad? Why great churches split? Why good people walk away from God? Lots of times, it's because they put their faith in their fiction and they got lost in the difference and they started writing their own story and then believing that their own story was true and that all there is is their story. Can you imagine what it would be like if we actually owned our stories, took responsibility, outed them in the safety of biblical community to just out them and say, oh my gosh, I've been in my head, I've been writing the story. And I don't mean outing them by still projecting 
at people like, I've been writing a story that you've been over there working on your laptop and you don't care about me because you work on your laptop a lot. Like I've noticed the last five, okay, that's more, that's projection. I'm talking about ownership, right? So I'm not trying to get a sting in. I'm talking about radical responsibility saying, I've been over here in my head. I've been writing this story. Can you imagine what would happen if we began to out that in our small groups? We began to out that in our serving teams. We began to out that in our relationships. We began to out that in our marriages. <sighs> begin to do that at work, even if you're the only one that does it in your work. To just begin to out. Can you imagine what might happen if we checked it out, if we cleared it up, cleaned it up, took responsibility rather than burying the amazing gift that God has given us of our thoughts, our minds, our feelings, our relationships? relationship with him. So this is what John was talking about when he wrote in 1 John 1.5, the life that you and I are actually created for and invited to live in. This is what he's talking about when he says that the message, that this is the message that we have heard, right? And we declare to you that God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. There is no darkness and no hiding in him at all. If we claim to have fellowship, now we Pay attention to this. If we claim to be in relationship, to have fellowship with him, and yet walk around in the darkness, walk around lost in our own little stories, then we're actually lying to ourselves and we're not living out of the truth. But get this, I never caught this till recently. Get this. But if we walk in the light, if we out our stories, take responsibility, have it say, you know, this is what I've been doing. Here's where I'm at. If we walk in the light as he is already in the light, we have fellowship with one another. That's the promise of living in the light. We have fellowship with one another. We actually get to see each other. We get to be in deep relationship with each other experience authentic intimacy with each other. That's what walking in the light leads to, real connection between you and me. We have real fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin, washes all the lies away till we're left in the wonder and glory of his grace. That's how I want to live. And I know you do too. And so it starts with you and me this week. Our homework is to just out our stories to just name, just do the work, check it out. And if you need to, this week, clear it up, clean it up. Do it, like the, the shorter the time between you writing your story and cleaning it up, clearing it up, the better. Anytime you find yourself writing a story, just name it. Oh man, I'm in my head, I've been writing this story. And just see what God does to release you from the power that that hole has on you. And how he opens you up to deeper connection with the people that you love people that you know. So I want to pray for us towards that, that end, this incredible work. I, I believe this is holy transformational work that we would walk in the light as he is in the light. So I'm going to ask you to stand if you would. I want to pray for us, then we'll close our time by responding to God's goodness and the truth of who he is. If you want to, we take a posture of prayer where we open our hands up to God. It's a way of just saying, my heart's open, my life's open. All my stories are on the table. So let's open our hands and our hearts to God. I want to pray for us. God, thank you for the truth of of who you are. God, I know I, I've had stories about you, God, in my life, and the longer I've walked with you, the easier it is to form those stories. But God, I, I, want, I want to live in the light as you are already actually in the light. And the truth is, God, you are good. You are so good. And you're so faithful to us. And you never forget about us. And you never let us go. And you long for us to live like you meant for us to live, like you created for us to live. 
in fellowship with you, but also ultimately in fellowship with each other. And so God, will you help us with this deeper truth? Would you help us with what we saw in Matthew 25 today, how our stories can lead us uh, to missing out on all that you have for us? Can you help us take responsibility this week to just out practice outing it with ourselves, with you, and ultimately with others? God, thank you for the transformational work that I, I already know you're going to do if we employ this tool and we practice it together with you. So God, we thank you for your goodness and your presence and your mercy, which is new today. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.